your now i've got your weird hands man here we are <laughs> we're here <laughs> we're yeah. here with three uh space and backgrounds yeah man look at me with a background it's because i'm in a shitty hotel and don't want to embarrass myself I, it's not that bad. outside i'm actually outside on a screen porch here it's ah, that's why i hear the birds i hear the birds yeah the birds. uh well great guest today lee the uh ceo of the network advertising initiative which is uh awesome uh i was on the board for a year um right up until i left uh data zoo yeah nai is honestly critical infrastructure for ad tech companies like it's that simple or martech all the whole industry um lee's amazing i almost went to go work for her a few years ago we'll leave that off we'll leave that conversation for another day but like um I believe in the work they do. I believe in her. She's great. Her, she's a high integrity person. She's not out there and her organization is not out there, you know, kind of like just fighting for revenue, but just fighting for like fair and like good outcomes. And um, I think she does a tremendous job. She does. And one of the best things about her being on the board and then being <laughs> a member is not only the sort of table stakes ad tech knowledge, which will be very clear when we talk to her, like, She's, yeah. she's been in the game as long as anybody in ad tech, but, yeah, for sure. but yeah. just the, the natural leadership, uh, through, through being relatable and real like that, that's just so just doesn't happen all the time. You know, yeah. she handles like, the burden of leadership with a lot of grace. I mean, she's obviously a leader in our industry and, um, she keeps it real in all ways, right? She's a truth teller, but also like she's approachable, you know? When I, when I was on the board, we had, you know, one board meeting where we were going over like the organization's budget and they were going through salaries and things. And I think I mentioned like a, a, a person, you know, who I was like, this person's valuable. Can we, can we raise them up a little more? And um, she came up to me afterwards and she was like, I really appreciated you like calling that out and, and saying that about that person. And advocating for them it wasn't a lot but but they got a little whatever more. Yeah. And like, yeah. and like that's the those are the little things that that make leaders you know who they're people and and they look out for their people too so that was great yeah, i agree man I when's the last time you played space invaders man long time i had an original atari uh Me too. and and i played space invaders a lot along with um pitfall yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> i love space invaders space invaders is a great arcade game too man like, oh yeah it's good on it's good on the arcade machine you know um so i love that favorite, what was your favorite game to play in the arcade did you have like a favorite 80s or 90s street, street fighter 2 oh. it's not even close like it's not it's not even close mortal kombat these are the perfect games for side by side let's let's i mean they're perfect for this obviously pac-man Space Invaders are in that same realm, right? But like, it's hard to beat a Street Fighter, man. Mine was always, mine. I had three favorites. One was Galaga. I think we- Oh yeah, that's another great we one. Did a, we did an episode, Galaga episode. Um, the other was, did you ever play Kung Fu? 
No, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it came out on Nintendo later, but yeah. the arcade version of Kung Fu was in this um, this diner that I used to go to with my family all the time. <laughs> and so I, I played Kung Fu. And then the other one was an- another karate game, which just had two joysticks, which you, you didn't have any buttons. You just moved the joysticks in different directions to make moves <laughs> super hard. <laughs> you know what game I loved? And we got to do an episode. Double Dragon, man, that was so much fun. Dude. Double Dragon was so good. And Shinobi, you remember these games? These are yeah. good. Like, that's like the fight. Yeah, go ahead. Wasn't there a horrible live action Double Dragon movie? I think so, dude. <laughs> Did that win an so. Oscar? <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure I got a few Golden Globes. Yeah. <laughs> art, best art direction. Uh, yeah, no, no, yeah, best fighting sequences, I'm sure. But, um, and, and you know, best screenwriting. I'm sure the screenwriting was A1. <laughs> yeah, I think it was the same writer that wrote Cider House Rules. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> and, and Mystic River. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the depth fact, of I think that the guy part. who wrote Mystic River, by the way, I'll say the guy who wrote Mystic River, I think, went to my university. So shout out to Florida International University. Uh, I'm pretty sure about that. But if I'm wrong, whatever. <laughs> Dark movie. So I don't know what happened. Dark, but good screenwriting yeah. <laughs> and good story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, we got to do a Double Dragon episode and we got to do a Super, I don't know, who do, who could we invite for Super Mario Brothers? Like it has to be the most epic. I don't know. We'll, we'll have to think about it. I don't know. We, should, we could take we could take suggestions on that. I, I have maybe, no idea. Yeah, I feel like maybe that you, that might be one where we have to have two guests because it's, it's that. So well, that's a good idea. Yeah. One That's Mario, it. one Luigi. That we can need a Mario and a Luigi, man. Otherwise, <laughs> it's not. Otherwise, we're not doing Mario Brothers justice, but we can talk about that some other time. Anyway, let's get on the AOL bandwagon. I'm ready. All right, here we go. <laughs> All right. Here we are. We're here. You know, here. every time you turn on record now, like I get this weird alert. Is that new? I I don't remember that. Yeah, that's new. Zoom does that to you now, yeah. Yeah, look at Zoom, man, giving me the heads up. Appreciate it. <laughs> look who's here. Look how exciting this is. Yeah, we got Yay! Lee. So uh, good to see you guys. I just wish we could be doing this in person, and I'm hopeful that very soon we get to do that again. Me too. We're, we're inching along. We're inching along. Getting there. We're getting there. Things are feeling more normal. I'm in my office in downtown DC. Nice. The restaurants that are on our block. The Jose Andres restaurants are doing well. Others are boarded up. It's a, but we're seeing some energy in the district starting. Yeah. You've great. got some prime. You guys are in like a prime location for eating. I'd I'd weigh seven thousand pounds if I worked it where is. your office is because it's so much good food. Yeah. Across the street. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> speaking of speaking of good food, the one place I wanted to start was um, Lee. You you I forget what year it was. You organized um, NAI board meeting offsite in Portland, Maine. You your you team did? did that, and that's the best time I've had at anything like that ever. And I just like I wanted to start there because I, one of the things I love about you is how much you value having fun while working. You know, <laughs> so we're all there to work, but like I th- that was so fun also. Well, thank you so much for saying that. And I hope, you know, I feel like we all have to enjoy each other as people and get along and that produces better work. 
right? So it's, it's um, and it's something I learned, you know, I know we're going to talk about it later, but way back at AOL, right? I mean, it was work hard, play hard. And, and I think that that is sticking with us. We, we started the concept of a board retreat uh, the year after I started at NAI and the board members really enjoy each other's company and they want to get together for things other than solving the biggest problems in our industry. They want to do that too, but if we can have a nice dinner and a good bottle of wine and maybe some bonding opportunities, hello there, <laughs> uh, then, then, then it's all the better, right? And so, um, you know, so yeah, we've, we've done uh, Portland, New Orleans, Napa, um, we're, we're trying to decide, I'm open for suggestions. We're trying to decide where to go. Uh, our board has all agreed to meet for an in-person retreat in September. So we're uh, nice. excited to do that. And we just, I was just, I changed my hair, but we were just filming, um, filming promo video for our in-person NAI summit in October in oh, Seattle. That's so great. October 6th and 7th in Seattle. And, you know, one of the things that we heard when we kind of did surveys to figure out if we should be in person or not was one, like, yes, be please can you be <laughs> in person. And, uh, and so we've, we've really built uh, extra time in for exactly what you described, Andy, which is just networking time, time for people to get together and talk. It's those hallway, Jules always talks about the hallway conversations, right? That's what's missing in this year. It's even hard to get Zoom. You can't interrupt each other because everybody only speaks one at a time. And um, so it, I'm really excited to interrupt, have people interrupt me and to be interrupted. <laughs> We're really good at interruptions, Carol. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah, you got something. I remembered um, about the Portland trip, two things that stood out. Obviously, we, we had a lot of fun together and we, we like I learned a lot from all those discussions. The, the networking aspect is interesting, but it's also the learning, like just the learning from other people's experiences. You know, that that was incredible. And that was uh, we've referenced this before. You had Jules and Trevor come in and speak to us together, which was mm -hmm. so this is, you know, to the people that have been doing this as long as <laughs> as long as anybody from the very beginning. And so unvarnished, you know, door, closed door session with them really talking about what that was like. And for, for, for me and others in the room, it was just like such a cool thing to be a, not even to be a participant in that it was great. It's really fun. Yeah. I think the history lesson combined with their decades of perception on what we should be doing moving forward and how we should be operating these very complex businesses was, you know, a learning experience for everybody in the room. Yeah. Learning from each other is huge. And, and as you know, we, we have um, outside of the NAI, but with, with a lot of those members had our own group of people that get together and bat issues around and things. Yeah. It wouldn't be what it is without the relationships that were formed through the, through the work and the fun stuff that we did, you know, together with, with the NAI for sure. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I think that, I think that it, it's a special group of people. And it's one of the things that when I, when I was making the decision to leave AOL, you know, or leave any job, really, you, you develop these bonds and relationships and you're worried that you won't have that in the next job. And that is not the case here. You know, you have that in spades. This, this, these, these relationships are really um, deep 
and meaningful, um, both professionally and personally. And so I think it's, um, it's- That was one reason, that was one reason, Lee, but what, what were the other reasons? I mean, you were like over 10 years at AOL, like, you know, as, <laughs> as a lawyer. So like, what, what were the reasons that you jumped in to go, to go do the NAI job? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, like it was close to 12 years and isn't that in internet years, isn't that like a hundred years? Just 50,000 years. 50,000 years. Um, so it's it, very interesting. And, and AOL had people like that that stayed forever. Some of my, uh, my closest colleagues are still there through all of wow. the changes and turmoil. And uh, I think, so, so you know, why would you leave a, an organization like that? I think the opportunities uh, that are presented by, by the public policy discussions around privacy uh, are really interesting. And the, the, the chance to lead those discussions and create some strategy and be in charge of a vision and a mission was probably the number one reason. Although it was super bittersweet to leave. And, and you know some of my best friends are still there as I said before, but I think, uh, you know, when you're facing, and now obviously the challenges are even bigger, right? But I think uh, at the time, the concept of leading an industry into um, meaningful and responsible privacy protections and best practices is really important. I think the other opportunity that I, I spoke to the board about when I first came on was the opportunity to do advocacy and public policy in our industry, which Pedro has in spades from Facebook, but a lot of small companies in our industry don't have that public policy voice. They, they haven't really thought about how important that voice is in Washington, as we can clearly see as a result of some of the legislative and regulatory things that have come up. And so I think to, to be the voice of our industry in this town is, uh, is a great challenge, but also a great opportunity that I couldn't pass up. Did I hear an AOL instant message ping while you were talking or was that inside my brain? No, no, was that on my computer? If so, oh, I... it, was, it was mine. It was a Microsoft uh, uh, auto update. Oh, <laughs> so okay. is, that, is that the AOL instant message? No. That's what it sounded like. No. Are you That's... really? Oh, okay, Imagine I'm sorry. You heard, uh... oh, it didn't sound like that. I'm going to put do not disturb on right now just the reminder. Um, but starting to have, I was really hoping that somebody was getting an AIM message because no. I... <laughs> What would be better if is if was if we heard you've got mail? Oh my God, those were the days. <laughs> so it's funny, some funny stories about that. So you know that AIM was the original social social message for sure, and it's it's really truly you know I think one of the one of the lost opportunities of AOL at the time, and it, we had everything on it. You had avatars. You had the ability to animate. You had at the later stages of video, you, you, know, you could instantly connect with people and you could put status updates. So if I had to ping somebody for work, I knew if they were out of their office or idle or whatever. So it was really a meaningful thing. And, and AOL internally used it as a business tool. So I just remember coming from a big corporate law firm in my first couple of uh, months at AOL, everybody had AOL email, so you got mail was all over the place and, and aim. And we, we were in a wall of offices. And I remember people that were in the office next to me or maybe one away or out in the cubicles 
pinging me on AIM. Are you there? Can are you there? Can I call you? You know, and whereas like you could have just called me or literally yelled and I would have heard you or come to my door, but every single business transaction internally at AOL started with a ping. You it was it was it was uncouth to call people or walk into their office unless you pinged them first. Are you there? I'm gonna come by. Are you, you know, do you have a second? It, it was a really interesting uh, culture, but uh, but AIM, yeah, and I think AIM is now no longer uh, supported. So it's gone. Can, yeah, it it was a sad day. It, it's it, funny. I, I never thought of the business applications of AIM, but obviously they were there um, because I was in school when AIM. I was in high school when AIM was like super hot and 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 or became super hot. And it was when I tell you, like you would run home. This is before like mobile you know smartphones and all this garbage but like you would run home log on that 56k and pop aim on to, and and like see what your friends are doing or you'd walk away from your computer and put in a away message and it was like a whole thing like you, like who your friends were was important like i had some of the best socializing i did in high school was on aim but for sure for sure and like then eventually there were like chat rooms. It was, a, it was a whole thing. It was great. And then through college, it was extremely important. It's how we all communicated before Facebook. Um, yeah. And then, you know, kind of Facebook came and started swallowing everything up. But like, um, I'm extremely nostalgic about AIM. It's like like a critical part of my youth. Like, I don't know how to explain it. it it's like, it's I, it's got to be like what drive-in theaters were for other generations. Like, it's that important to me. Like AIM and we have nostalgic conversations about it. It's, yeah. To, to your point about lost opportunity, like AIM was WhatsApp before WhatsApp. Like, Absolutely. AIM, like, but like, unbelievably WhatsApp before WhatsApp, and like the potential for AIM would have been high. I think you're right. It was like a kind of like a big miss because and, it was first to market and and Slack. I mean, like, oh yeah, all uh, that stuff. Slack yeah. was Slack was invented internally. <laughs> Right. <laughs> that wasn't the business yeah that wasn't the business they set out to start they were using right. it and they were like this is amazing and so yeah. there's so many i guess it was it led me to sort of think and ask lee like over the 12 years you were there what a critical period that you were there actually like oh, yeah. for the growth of of that company and the movement from like the first the first ish email kind of stuff all the way through to ad tech how was that for you it was a fascinating transition, right? So I was not there at the very beginning where you could have gone across the street to the Ferrari dealership and bought a car in cash. <laughs> Unfortunately, that was not my my AOL generation, sadly. But uh, but but when I started, it was AOL Time Warner, right? So the 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 amazing synergy of those two mega corporations coming together and AOL AOL actually purchased Time Warner in the transaction, which a lot of people don't realize and then those synergies never never came to be which is why i think further down the road the concept of verizon coming in and buying aol and yahoo on the concept of synergy was was you know kind of been there done that like we knew it wasn't going to be something because there's two cultures mixing but uh and and all kinds of data protection challenges uh, from a regulated industry versus an unregulated industry but AOL was uh, you know, transformational for all of us. And I think uh, while I was there, you know, we uh, made the decision even before the, the separation of AOL and Time Warner 
remember John Miller, the CEO at the time, making the decision to uh, to rely solely on ad revenue uh, as the business model for the company and making all of the email, the you've got mail, the way to get online free. And whereas before that was the, and, and for years after, by the way, was the bulk of the revenue coming into the, to the company way more than ad revenue. And so to make that kind of transformational business decision that you were gonna make your primary offering free and then recoup it with ad revenue that was gonna take years and years to, to come up to the same level was really a, a incredible strategic business decision, right? And then one of the first um, tech companies to make that call. And now, right. now, now that happens quite. <laughs> quite now it happens all the time, right? But then, and then, you know, and then there was the the purchase of ad.com, right? Which is really the start of the ad network, right? AO ad.com was the original ad network, which is we don't have, you know, you don't have to worry about where to find the ad inventory. You know, if you remember the original ad inventory or ad network was we will purchase that inventory from publishers and package it up and resell it to advertisers and agencies that want and 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 so the distinctive you know dna that you put into trying to decide how you package that inventory that you as a company purchased literally purchased and are reselling it in a way that that is attractive to advertisers because you're finding the right users. So that secret sauce of how they did that uh, was really interesting. I mean, I remember sitting down with Scott Ferber and getting a, a master class on a whiteboard of how ad networks work. And uh, I could not recreate it for you, but it, it was a, a fascinating thing. And then all the other acquisitions come and then you separate back out from Time Warner. And, and this is where the kind of the aim missed opportunity is at the time the you know the, the talk was all of fragmentation and we've obviously seen that play out in the marketplace but the bet was on individualized audiences you know yeah. siloed in content and so these big brands like the running man and aim and aol in general um, were really kind of put on the sideline for the opportunity to deep dive into silos of content and you know one can argue whether or not that was successful or not successful uh but well, i, I think was going to ask you about that like we, we we've talked about this in the context of salesforce pedro's old uh, employer yeah. where in comparison to other companies where large-scale m a you know especially in our space either either it's like either works really well or it, it or it doesn't work at all. I feel like there's very little middle ground, um, or, or rather, if there is middle ground, it's sort of like middles along for a while, and then eventually you're like, ah, oh, that probably didn't work as well as, as we wanted it to. So, yeah. like, what I'd, I'd be interested to hear this from both of you. What what do you think separates that? Like, what's the difference between? Is it the strategy at the beginning? Is it the integration messiness that we always that we know is always part of like any M&A really of any scale, there, there's always integration challenges. Is it, what, what, what do you think drives that, the, the outcome? Yeah, I mean, I, first of all, I think it, it, culture, as you mentioned, the integration messiness has a lot to do with it, right? So I think it is really important as a strategic conversation to think about the problem that you're trying to solve with acquisitions and find a discrete way to solve that. If, 
you know, if it is by acquisition, then you need to understand the role that that acquisition is going to play in the broader company. Um, and and you know, AOL was traditionally, and I think even Tim Armstrong would agree with me, not super great at integrating acquisitions. So you know, there were uh, some that got integrated into the business model. There were some that swam in their own lane for a while. And the success of, of all of that is mixed. And I, so I think you have to really focus on, like I said, the problem you're trying to solve. I don't know, Pedro probably has a viewpoint on that too. I think you're exactly right. You led with culture. That's what I would have led with. Like understanding each organization's culture and making sure they're going to mesh is important, right? And like I've been, I've never, have I ever been on the acquisition? I guess one time when I was early on in my career, I was seconded to a company that was acquired by another. Uh, Prolexic Technologies was acquired by Akamai, just a great company based up in your neck of the woods. Um, um, and they did a really good job of integrating us. But I've mostly been on the opposite side, which is like Oracle, Salesforce, right? Like buying stuff. Um, and I thought Oracle did a pretty good job of like accelerating integration um, and, and kind of like not destroying culture, right? right? Because that, that's important. Like you buy companies with their own identities and, and like you want to learn from that and take, you know, whatever like good characteristics those cultures have and try to get them to kind of like, um, you know, in, be injected in your own organizational culture. And I think part of the reason is like, like Oracle's always thought of as this like serious, big kind of like gigantic, well-established company. But one of the ways I think Oracle kind of stays vital is through its acquisition activity right like it brings in all this smart energetic kind of refreshed uh refreshed energy every so often that impacts oracle i think in positive ways salesforce is a little different because salesforce buys big well at least the last two acquisitions have been like super big acquisitions right um and i think bringing those into the oracle ohana is i mean into the salesforce ohana is a little harder um but somehow Salesforce, I don't know how they did it, man, but like getting people to like embrace the Salesforce way is something Salesforce is really good at. And yeah, people want to do it the Salesforce way because it's a cool place to work. It's inviting. So I was just going to say an, that. It's an engaging it's in, place. Like Whereas yeah. Oracle, I feel like, and I'm speaking out of school, I promise here, obviously, but Oracle feels like it's incumbent upon Oracle to pull those companies in and be like, here's why it's good to be here. And yeah you know MA is a core competency of oracles like that, that that's a known yeah, thing right. but like, right. here's why the culture makes sense for you to be here here's the fit here's what you know what how you're going to fit into us culturally and business-wise and with salesforce there's a cool factor which is maybe a little different which is like yeah yeah like, we're here this we're, is great news salesforce this is yeah. great like we're you're gonna right. you're gonna you know oh the fact that they call the team ohana like there's just a lot of like little things that they're doing that make it it's, it was interesting listening to you both when Session M was acquired by MasterCard, they, they were very open with us. They said, we haven't done the best job of integrating in the past. They're pretty acquisitive and, and they were not nearly like what Oracle and Salesforce are, but pretty like they're buying several companies a year and they're, they're, they were honest with us about it. And I think that helped a lot. Like They were just like, this is a two-way street and, and the integration activities are going to be two-way street and we're going to we're going to jump in together and they all along, you know, to, to your point, Pedro, about Salesforce, it was, it was culturally 
we're gonna we're gonna we're not gonna blow up what you've created culturally we're gonna mesh the two cultures together and so they did a nice job of being like of like looking in the mirror i thought of you know as they did it with us but that was good yeah i think culture matters and i also think like business alignment matters it doesn't mean you have to buy only companies in your business but it means that they have to like fit some part of your strategic direction or you're just going to stifle them Right. right, like I mean, there do have to be synergies. There do there has there to be something, to be right? Something, right? And I, you know, and and the concepts of you know AOL Time Warner or AOL Yahoo Verizon, you know, are completely 180 degrees on the spectrum different from each other. And if the synergy is data, which I think in the latter acquisition was most definitely the concept, right? And uh, it just the regulated side uh, was necessarily very conservative about that. And I just, you know, it's, it's uh, the, the entrepreneurial, more tech focused uh, side of uh, ad tech was not on the same page, I think. This is and one of the things that strikes me as so interesting about your role now as the CEO of NAI. Like all these companies, many of them are your members. And there's all this acquisitive activity happening and people moving in and out, like in and out. And we, we've always joked about like our friends who are at smaller companies are now at much bigger companies because advertising is so critical. How have you dealt with all of the change that's happening both within your membership and your board? Like there's a lot of like. <laughs> the board has been uh, uh, on rotation in the yeah. last. 18 months to two years, more than in the prior five years combined. Wow. And I think that's partially as a result of acquisitive strategy, but I think it's also the, uh, the, the part of changing dynamics in our industry mean people leave and go to different places a lot more quickly or more often than they have in the past. And, you know, Acquisitions for us, consolidation in the industry, obviously from a membership standpoint, is challenging because you have, you know, you rely on a certain number of companies, a certain level of membership dues, and when a company, a smaller company, gets acquired, uh, the revenue of that of the resulting company doesn't necessarily make up for the difference in the two membership fee structures. Uh, I think on the other hand, though, what, what I have seen is an explosion of smaller companies based on that acquisitive strategy, smaller companies who are more narrow in their focus, so mobile travel companies, you know, who focus on mobile travel apps. Of course, they have not been doing so well since the pandemic, right? But, or, or very niche advertising categories opening, you know, being entrepreneurial and having startups and small companies. And I think the focus on privacy over the last few years has really made membership in the NAI a must have for some of the smaller companies that want to be visible to those acquiring companies. They, that strategy is important. They want to be seen as responsible on privacy. And part of that is an NAI membership that you can yeah. say that that due diligence uh, that privacy due diligence, that checkup is done every year and it's thorough and it's meaningful. And the, I, I, as an acquiring company, know that if I'm going to buy an NAI member, at least part of those boxes are checked for me. And so we, so we do see a lot of new entrants. And so, you know, I'm always a cup is half, you know, I'm always a cup is half full 
person. So I think the future remains bright. And I think the, you know, I do worry obviously with the bigger uh, marketplace trends about what that means for the ability of small entrants to the marketplace. Um, you know, I know Facebook is worried about the same thing. I was gonna ask you about this. This like, this brings me to a, like a interesting point. Like My little traditionally little. you've got- yeah, Look at that little branded cup. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> Although in October, I will say, just I don't mean to cut you off, Andy, but I will say, be on the lookout. NAI is changing its look and feel. Really cool. Well, actually, Lee, it sort of relates to what I was going to ask. So, I was going to ask if you've if you'd ever considered like, I don't know if rebranding is the right word, but like you have traditionally, the traditional ad tech is third party cookies, third party data. And having moved from a third-party data company to two first-party data-focused companies, still doing a lot of marketing activities, often a different like area of the funnel, but similar activities and similar data problems and similar GDPR problems and similar CCPA challenges. And like, uh, how, how, how have you thought through strategically, and I think this is where you're, you're going, like the strategic long-term uh, play with respect to like first party data and and the movement you know either away from third party cookies towards identifiers or like what does that mean for you in terms of like both the company or the, or the, the 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 nai in general like the and the code itself yeah it's an interesting question what i mean we've obviously uh, that is our sole focus at the moment so you, you can start with the obvious third party cookies are going away uh, yeah. So companies that rely on tracking using third-party cookies are going to have to, in a favorite corporate speak word, pivot, right? And I think the pivot is more towards one of two things, uh, towards, or three things, contextual, uh, contextual advertising, which we, you know, which is not back all the way to the 80s, but is, you know, kind of back a little ways in ad tech uh, history, and, and we, we, feel pretty good about the fact that it's not quite as uh, beneficial for advertisers and marketers. We should go back to pop-ups. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Unders. Um, or uh, or um, first party data. Andy, as you pointed out, right? First party data is gonna be the, the oil. I mean, first party data is the oil. How that data is shared uh, and, and promulgated through the ecosystem to create opportunities for us to for companies to find their users or to create or to find new customers because new customers are not in a first party relationship with marketers right now, right? So, so that's a challenge. And so I think you get then to the third thing which is identifiers uh, in the marketplace. And uh, we have a challenge and an opportunity to build something, yeah, I'll use the current administration's term to build back better. Uh, we have an opportunity to do that. Uh, I think the challenge is everyone is so freaked out and worried about changing it and, and re-architecting the system that uh, it's a slow to adopt model, right? So, you know, I would love to say um, uh, everybody should come in, you should, you should re-architect so that there is a, a, a auditable, findable uh, attachment to a person that says whether or not you have that person's permission and what that person wants to look like on the internet. And that follows that person through the internet and companies have to, you know, have to honor that. 
I think that's a lot harder to build. Uh, you guys are the tech more tech people than I am, but that's pretty hard to build architecturally. And uh, you know, I would love to see that. I think the challenge is in the short term. Companies that are worried about their next quarter and and revenue uh, opportunities and the first movers in a privacy responsible place are not necessarily you know the best positioned economically. So uh, you know how do you get folks to move and and um, in a way that the bad actors don't just take your share. So I think that's hard, and I think uh, Andy, your your other part of your question was on uh, first parties. So the you know the NAI has really been kind of thinking about how the traditional ad tech companies work with the big first parties and with publishers. I think obviously our all of our conversations uh, on GDPR over the last few years and what happened you know when we tried to build a system and and um, didn't necessarily involve publishers right at the beginning and, and, and now they're trying to kind of make sure that their preferences and, and, and well, they didn't want, they didn't want to be involved. That, that, that. <laughs> and now they're claiming that they weren't involved. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so, right. Fair enough. Uh, but I think now, you know, you have the opportunity to have everybody together, hopefully in an, in an agreement on how to move forward. And I think, you know, my fear is, okay, we're all moving to first party data and then first party data just gets shared on the back end and we end up in the same place that we're in right now. End up in the same place. And I think that, I mean, and, and or, it might be or even worse, needs to happen before yeah. everybody gets religion on this. Yeah, or even worse, like the analytics on first party data are so overwhelmingly to the advantage of like large walled garden incumbents that like they don't share. And then right. everybody well, else is crushed. We've definitely seen the trend in that direction as well, right? And that yeah. will make and that will make the government upset at You're already at, upset. Right yeah, 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 yeah. Already upset. More. I, I know we I know I, I know we sort of like got a wrap, but let me ask you, but you mentioned contextual as like the first pillar, right? And like I think lots of folks see contextual as like it's weird because everybody's kind of talking about it as like this new greenfield, but your point is exactly right. Like contextual has been around for a long time. This isn't like something that got invented in, in the last six months. Um, one of the challenges I see with contextual, and this applies to Facebook, it applies to Google, it you know, YouTube, whatever, um, and any other platform really, is that like it's really closely, obviously connected to content, but the content you're being delivered is being, in many cases, generated through like a personalized feed or recommender system, right? So like when I'm on YouTube, like when I'm on YouTube, YouTube's like, hey, you should watch this video because we saw that you watched these other 30 videos. So you might be interested in this video. If you show an ad there in context, well, that context is a proxy for the personalization of the content, right? And it's so all it's all targeting. It's all targeted, right? And so that so that's why I mean I always say that the the attempt to regulate the use of data for digital advertising is myopic at best. And, yeah. and uh, it doesn't solve the problem because the other problem, I mean, as you correctly point out, content is curated and yeah, content. believe they have that right. They want to serve and, and consumers want that. They want things that are relevant to them. You, yeah, know, you, I, you took the words out of my mouth, which is I want my YouTube curated. Why, like, I don't want to do I don't want to see videos about like, you know, guys and their polar bears I'm, or polar bear activity. Like, I'm not interested in stuff I'm not interested in. 
wait, wait, then, wait, 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 pause. Do you mean people that are skinny dipping in cold weather, or or what? Or no, another like, what's like when I go, let, let me tell you what happened. So I get on. I don't really use the Safari browser very often because all my stuff is on Chrome. But I clicked on Safari, went to YouTube. I wasn't logged in, and there's all these dudes like trying to interact with polar bears. I'm like, what is this? I don't care about this. Like, but if you log into my YouTube, right, and it, it, it is my account, it's like race car driving, you know, van, like all the stuff I really, really want to see. And Google does a good job of showing it to me. I think the same thing happens with Facebook feed and Instagram. Like the content is curated for me. But you're right, Lee. Like it's targeting <laughs> but i want that type of targeting and the you know contextual is just living off that proxy right so and we should we'll save see. five minutes to talk about drive to survive and baku this weekend if we're into race cars because my son just came home a year ago from college and obviously during the pandemic you know he's working but working remotely and so why should he have his own apartment so he's been with us <laughs> nice. he's totally got me addicted to formula one Anyway, oh, good, 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 good. Uh, it's amazing. I love Formula One. Good. Baku is this weekend. Good stuff. But if everything is targeted and you're talking about the use of data, then shouldn't the use of that data come into the conversation, right? Yeah. And it's scary. You know, when, when, especially when, and this is a topic for a whole other hour of podcasting, but especially when that content is so curated that you're distorting reality and serving disinformation, yes. right? And so, that to me is a much scarier, much more dangerous use of data than me getting a Nordstrom shoe ad right before the summer. Totally. I knew out, right? So I think, um, you know, it, it's, it's myopic when we all talk about the evils of targeted advertising. And I've been fighting that for years, even when I was at AOL. But I think, you know, the, the responsible use of data and the, the responsible use of first party data, you know, Andy, you said first party company, you know, data companies are finding the same privacy challenges that third-party ads have, which is an interesting perspective because you've now represented both. And I think, you know, so, so expanding the concept of the responsible use of data to all data, uh, at least in advertising, is something that we are thinking about and working on. We hear from publishers all the time saying, Lee, you know, we have incorporated your sensitive data guidance into our policies and we really would like more of that can you help us as publishers figure out this responsible way forward in this new world and our answer is yes absolutely but let us you know game it out a little bit and offer some type of membership or some type of you know the code isn't going to apply to them right and so there's a gap in martech i, I think there's a gap yeah. as well like yeah. there's a gap in you know martech and ad tech flow together along a spectrum. And so there's, there's, I don't have the resources around any of the stuff you just mentioned in my role as a MarTech GC. Like I don't have it. It doesn't exist. Like there's no, there's no code of conduct that even remotely fits what we're trying to do. And we arguably have a lot more sensitive information. Not even right. arguably, really. We really have a lot. <laughs> right. So what we're trying to think about doing kind of in, in the answer, of, you know, what's the future of self-reg and the NAI? I mean, the answer is we're trying to think of it much more holistically and to provide um, guidance and best practices in pillars of, of data use and pillars of business model 
so, you know, addressability and identifiers, right? We're going to have a, a guidance document for the use of identifiers. And if you want to be part of that trusted ads ecosystem, you'll follow the guidance if you're going to be a participant in an identifier program, uh, regardless of what that program is, right? Uh, and if you're a publisher and you want to, you know, use data responsibly, here are the guidelines that publishers should do here. If you're using data location, it's something we've, you know, especially during the pandemic, we advanced all kinds of guidance on data location and the, and the obtaining of consent for data location, um, both pandemic related and non, right? Uh, we, you know, we published new guidance. We actually got a, Byron Tao wrote about us favorably in the Wall Street Journal, which is unheard of for uh, an ad tech organ, you know, trade association um, about that guidance. So, you know, so coming up with useful, I think the thing that the NAI um, is hearing most about what value we bring to companies is that expertise and thought leadership in specific practices, like here's what you do. And so whether that's a holistic code or whether it's a series of guidance that you can achieve sort of some level of certification, I'm thinking out loud. Um, but I, I think we're, it's more the latter and less the former um, because the other thing that we hear is we already have to comply with California and with Virginia and maybe with Nevada and maybe with Alaska and uh, GDPR. So don't give us yet another big thing that we have to do. And it's impossible to create a code that accommodates all of those, right? We, we've tried, um, it's, it's hard. So maybe we're gonna focus on specific verticals and give, um, and then broaden the opportunity for membership to companies like yours, Andy, or other publishers. And so, um, so we're starting- really wise. I think that's really wise, given, given where we are. And you said it really well, Lee, you've done, the, the organization has done a really nice job of evolving with what's happening. And so we have to wrap here, but like, this has been a great conversation, and that last these last points you made just um, add add you know add truth to that. Like you know, keep going, please. Yeah. Those are doing great yeah. work. And then all of those things that are listed behind you that we always try to fight down. I think the interesting thing now is that ad tech and our industry in general is now trying to fight for something, which is a whole different uh, yeah. aspect which is why you know you really need us in Washington because we've never been for legislation before. We've always been, well, this one doesn't really work for me. And now we're trying to holistically get comprehensive privacy legislation passed, which is a tall order, um, but, uh, but we're working on that too. Awesome. <laughs> You're on mute, Pedro. I just said, stay in that fight. We need that fight yep. to happen. And we need something smart to take place in Washington so that we can... Right. Get out of the mishmash. It's hard. It's hard to explain our industry to people, but we're uh, mm. yeah, we're we're trying to simplify it in a way that makes uh, makes it meaningful. Thanks for the work you do. It's yeah, super important. Yeah, when I sign off, I'm going to send you some AOL instant messages and see what happens. Awesome. I know my husband and I can't used to communicate even after we both left AOL. We didn't meet there, but we were both there at the same time. That for years, that was our during the day. Uh, and that nice. Now we have to text each other. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's great to see you. Use, use WhatsApp. Yes, that's that too. Yes, fair enough. Thank you. Yeah. All right. All right. Maybe if you guys become a member, I'll use WhatsApp. Perfect. Perfect. We'll, we'll leave it at that. Nice. Thanks, right. you guys, so much for having me. This was so much fun. It was. Great.